Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. I'm really looking forward to this. I've got one of Canada's mining icons, philanthropist also, known globally, Frank Justra, CEO, President of Fiori Group. Here's the thing. My question is, are we about to blow the opportunity in metals and minerals that we've just done when it comes to oil and gas? Canada's been blessed. And the demand has never been higher when you talk about the EV and the renewable energy revolution. You're going to appreciate hearing his thoughts on that, as I will. Also, we're going to talk about the development industry and trying to build the new homes with Ralph Vanderwall, Easy Invest. But I want to get right to the ground. Tell me what it's like to do a project. Tell me what expenses government add on. I think you're going to find that also fascinating. Also, I've got Ozzy, I've got Victor, I've got Michael, a goofy, shocking stat. A quote of the week, all of that coming your way. But first, let me start with the most fundamental statement about the role of government that's so often overlooked. The first role is the protection and well-being of residents of Canada. Now, many seem to disagree and express it in a more global agenda. So that's up to you which one you prefer. But I say our government's first responsibility is the well-being and protection of the people who live here live in Canada. And if that's the case, that they have failed miserably. They failed miserably, the Jewish population specifically. I want to go further with this. I mean, come on, there's no shortage of talk about how Canada's broken. With pushback, I know, from many and see themselves as progressive. And I'm not going to get into that big time debate other than to say, if the level of anti-Semitism on display for the last 147, 148 days since October 7th, doesn't hint that something is very wrong in Canada, I don't know what would. I mean, the hate, the calls for violence directed at a single ethnic religious group is the very definition of a hate crime under Canada's criminal code. It is the obliteration, though, of what's long been called Canadian values. We don't necessarily know the specific, but we sure know the gist of it. Liberals have long claimed to represent, but instead, We've witnessed an explosion of intolerance, of hate, of violence directed at Jews, their businesses, Jewish students on Canadian campuses, and has been met with the weakest response, equivocation, cowardice by some of our politicians. Surrender by politicians like BC Premier David Eby, who along with the NDP caucus sacrificed the only Jewish cabinet minister in the country to extremist anti-Semitic groups. I want you to think about this. What do you think the response would be to protest aimed directly at the eradication of any other minority in this country? What if there had been an anti-Chinese or anti-Asian or anti-Black, anti-Indigenous march? I mean, the government, along with the vast majority of Canadians, wouldn't tolerate it. Not for a moment. Politicians couldn't get on the microphones fast enough or TV, radio, social media to denounce it. And I'd be right with them, and I hope you would be too. But come on, that has not been the reaction to the relentless stream of pro-Hamas, pro-Palestine, anti-Israel protests that we've seen. That's been fueled by a deep, imported, I want to repeat that, imported anti-Semitism, calling at times for death to all Jews, the elimination of Israel, infatata. And these protests have at times been more than tolerated. They've been outright supported by some elected officials, some union leaders academics, and others throughout the country. Meanwhile, Jewish businesses have been vandalized. Jewish students have been intimidated on campus. 
Come on, even a Jewish daycare center was targeted while millions of Canadians' lives were disrupted by the protests. And governments barely lifted a finger to protect and prioritize the safety and well-being of Canadian residents. I want to say unequivocally, that shouldn't have been tolerated. We should not tolerate it. All actions that contravene our hate crime legislation should be enforced immediately, just like they would be if it was any other group targeted. You know, as I stated in the immediate aftermath of October 7th and the pro-Hamas anti-Semitism, the refusal by some to even acknowledge the blatant barbaric atrocities, this isn't the Canada I know. But you know what? I think I was wrong. I was naive. This is now a prominent feature in Canada today. And our governments have done virtually nothing to stop it. Nothing to protect the residents of Canada. In fact, they facilitated it by importing vast majority of the heightened anti-Semitism we're now seeing on our streets, our major institutions. Canada doesn't benefit from importing hate, importing conflicts from other parts of the world. We'd be better off without these people. Yet no politician is prepared to even talk about it. But we need to talk about it before it gets worse. And we got lots of examples in Europe to illustrate. I mean, the NDP Liberal government disagrees you know, obviously, otherwise they would have called for immediate changes to the immigration slash refugee slash legal immigrants, uh, illegal immigrant policy. They insist on a much stronger enforcement of hate crimes. If they, in fact, thought this was a problem, they'd do that. They'd insist. But you know what? In the meantime, our country's changed. They have changed Canada. And for those of us who believed in Canadian values that are exemplified by tolerance, by forgiveness, and certainly not hate directed at anyone because of their ethnicity or religion. Well, for all of us, Canada is indeed broken. Hey, this is the Polar Plunge Day. Uh-oh, worried about it already. The Polar Plunge. If you're listening in the morning while we're doing it at 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, English Bay, freezing water temperatures right in well, Actually, it's at the all-time 10-year low within a sniff of the all-time low, we'll still be doing it. And I want to say now, I can't tell you how much I appreciate those people who have supported our efforts here. I mean, it's worth it. It's got nothing to do with me, other than I think some people would like to see me doused in cold water. It's got everything to do with you, everything to do with the people who took a moment to donate. I can tell you, people with Down syndrome or autism, Fragile X, they're regularly forgotten in our communities. The Money Talks audience has not forgotten them. And there's still time if you want to make a donation, just go to Money Talks Plunge, moneytalksplunge.com. And I'd be lying if I said I was looking forward to it. I'm not. But it does warm my heart to think of the cause we're doing it for and the amount of support we've got. My thanks. I've been looking forward to this, getting a chance to talk with Frank Justra. You know him. He's been a winner of the Order of Canada uh, so heavily involved in philanthropic endeavors, though, both globally and domestically through the Juster Foundation. I know lately he's been spending a huge amount of time as co-chair of the Crisis Group, an independent nonprofit NGO committed to preventing and resolving deadly conflict, obviously busy in this time of year. Uh, but I first met Frank over 40 years ago. We were both starting at Merrill Lynch. But here's the thing. The next thing I know, he was the head of Yorkton Securities and helping that firm become a leading investment banker for the resource industry. I mean, he has a long history in Canada's mining industry, president and CEO of Fiori Group, which focuses on natural resources. 
And that's what I want to talk to Frank about today. First of all, Frank, very much appreciate finding time for us. Great being here, Michael, as always. Well, I want to just start, let's talk the broad picture for a second. It would seem to me this is a pretty good time to be coming into mining right now. I mean, I'm thinking, I just read India, by the way. Uh, I think it was on Friday I read that India wants, you know, some huge amount of copper, you know, for what they're doing there. And but that's not a rare story. I mean, I'm seeing that every second day, I feel like. We're not even close to meeting that demand. So it seemed like a pretty good time to be at least looking at this industry. Yeah, India's not alone, by the way. It's uh, it's the entire planet. And here's what's happened. So, um at this moment in time, uh, we're facing in the next 15, 20 years, a very severe shortage deficit of the critical minerals that are going to be necessary to get us to net zero by 2050. I've spoken to uh, heads of senior mining companies. I've read all the analyst reports. No one knows where these metals are going to come from. And let's talk about what those metals are. You mentioned copper. Obviously, that's the primary battery metal, but there's cobalt, nickel, manganese, graphites, um, and lithium. All of those are critical minerals for our energy transition. And we don't know where they're going to come from. And now the only country on the planet that was well-prepared was China. China has been quietly for 20 years now, two decades, have been quietly investing around the world helping to build infrastructure and merging economies, all for one purpose, to get their hands on the resources that they need, both energy and metals, okay? And they've spent probably $1.3 trillion in 165 countries, 20,000 projects in low- and middle-income countries, building infrastructure to secure those resources. The rest of the world woke up to this about a year ago. And, And I started noticing when I... I was approached by some American representatives uh, a year and a half ago, um, suggesting that people like myself, because I've been financing mining worldwide for for a long time, uh, why aren't we competing in Africa? And Africa has become the battleground, if you're going to call such a thing. And I think we're heading towards a resource war, global resource war, and the battle lines are being drawn. And the biggest continent where those battle lines are being drawn is Africa. And as you know, I'm the, as you mentioned, I'm the co-chair of the International Crisis Group, so we're well aware of all of the dead, deadly conflicts that are taking place. And there are dozens of them taking place across Africa, whether it's jihadists in the Sahel and the French fighting them, them backing off, then the Wagner Group from Russia coming in. Uh, now you got Saudi Arabia, you got the, uh, Qatar, UAE, Turkey, all of these countries, the United States is still fighting a 20-year counterterrorism campaign that has achieved nothing um, except create more terrors. <laughs> and yeah. But at the end of the day, you had several civil, civil wars taking place, military coups. There were nine military coups in the last three years in Africa. Um, all of this is happening because there's a prize. Whether they say it or not, the prize is the mineral wealth, the resource wealth of these countries. And like the Wagner Group, which is now called they rebranded, by the way, since since their fearless leader got blown up in a plane. Um, they're now called the Africa Corps. But same gig. They basically lend their protection services to regimes that need protection, either from their own people or from jihadist movements. And in return, they get mineral concessions and they make billions from this. stuff. So that was that's sort of the background. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the deficit is real. Um, copper alone 
we're going to have to mine more copper in the next 15 years than we mine the entire history of this planet. We're going to need four times, somewhere between four and six times, the critical minerals that we consume today. We're going to need them by 2040. And again, no one knows where they're going to come from. So you've got all this fighting going on, the conflicts. Latin America, where I've done a lot of business, um, you've got a very, the environment has changed very quickly. There's a lot of social unrest. They're raising the uh, taxes and royalties on mining companies at the same time that these mineral deposits are being depleted and the grades are getting lower and lower, meaning you have to move more dirt to get that, the same amount of ore. Peru, Chile, Ecuador, all of these places have issues. And so this is happening all at a time when we're, the world is experiencing deglobalization. You know, we're getting the balkanization of supply chains, French-shoring, offshoring, and, you know, Canada makes statements like we will ban China from investing in our critical minerals. China makes statements like we're going to ban the export of uh, graphites. Indonesia talking about creating an OPEX style cartel for battery minerals. Um, there are countries everywhere, even, even the DRC in, in, um, in Africa, which is one of the biggest metals producers there, especially for cobalt and nickel and copper. They're basically suggesting they want their state-owned mining company to get off-takes from the local mining companies so that they can keep the metals themselves as opposed to exporting them out. So all of this is taking place. And here we are in Canada, second largest landmass on the planet, with almost every critical mineral that's needed exists in Canada, largely unexplored. The best mining expertise on the planet in terms of whether it's capital markets, technical, engineering, legal, accounting, environmental. We have thousands of firms that specialize. And we're a global leader in mining expertise. We could be a global powerhouse in critical minerals. And we're not doing anything about it. And we're starved for capital. The government is not really implementing the kind of visionary uh, policies that countries like China, Saudi Arabia, now the U.S., you know, is looking to secure the metals around the world through various arrangements with other countries by, again, investing in infrastructure. And here we're sitting in Canada with all of this wealth and potential job creation uh, uh, work projects, and we're doing nothing about it. And it's it's just tragic. We could be at, at an absolute global powerhouse in these minerals that are going to do nothing but go up in price. Because if you have this deficit, the only way you can meet the demand is if you raise the prices. And so that's going to happen. Things like copper and nickel and cobalt are going to go through the roof someday. And we have all of this wealth and we do nothing about it. And it's just tragic. This is why I went public with that article about um, about our own pension funds and our investing in Canada, which I think is absolutely tragic. And... Um, you know, we can talk about that if you like, but it's it. But there's an opportunity here, but it needs vision and needs a bold vision, it needs leadership that I don't think we have currently, um, and it 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 does need government help. And I can give you the list of things that the government can do to help solve the problem. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I find it really worrisome. We had an opportunity in oil and gas too that we did just about everything we could not to take advantage of it. And, and and again, I hope people are listening closely to what you're describing. On the one hand, people are going, oh, yes, we know we're going to have a renewable and EV revolution. 
on the other, the fact is we don't even have close to the minerals necessary to take even a couple of steps because there was no planning for it whatsoever. And then three, Canada is so well positioned. I mean, you know, the good Lord's handed us an opportunity here. We've got the resources, as you outlined beautifully. And of course, you're, you're having direct uh, experience this uh, right now, looking at crises around the world with the crisis group. I mean, this is a safe place to be doing it. I, I'm flabbergasted. Have you talked to some of the government officials or, uh, you know, you know, so many in the mining industry in this country. Uh, what are they saying? Because uh, well, I, we just can't yeah, afford to lose this. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of the industry people. Um, I've not talked to government. I tried to get a meeting with the federal minister of uh, mines and resources, and I couldn't get a meeting with them yet. But, uh, but you know, I, I, I've only started this campaign about bringing mm-hmm. this issue to the public awareness only a few weeks ago uh, when I was made aware about our pension funds. And and that is the part that is just absolutely, I, I'm flabbergasted that we can't get our heads around that our own pension funds, which manage about 35% of Canadian savings, have decided to invest more in China than they do yeah. in their own Canadian economy. And if you compare, you look at in the direct comparison is Australia, okay? Almost a similar economy, mineral wealth. They have their, um, they call them superannuation funds, but they're same as our pension funds. And they made a decision to invest in Australia. Uh, whereas we have only, 25% of the assets under management invested in Canada, they have 60. Whereas we only have 3% of pension fund money invested in public equities. The rest is in long-term government bonds, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is a losing trade in an inflationary environment. Um, but we only have 3% invested in Canadian public equities. They have 25%. They protect their mining industry. Uh, I, one of the largest dealers here in Canada, which is uh, does most of the mining underwriting work in Australia says every time that they do a deal, the big orders come from the pension funds, from the superannuation funds. Mm. And and they have more invested, the Aussie pension funds, more invested in their lithium producers than we have in our entire mining industry in this country. And that is just unacceptable, unacceptable. And, you know, so what the, what the pension funds were, whereas, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were 80 to 90 percent invested in Canada. They've left, and they, we're building China's economy. Mm-hmm. It, it, to me, it's it's a tra- it's both comic and tragic that we're exporting our capital, our savings, to grow China's economy when we're in a battle for critical minerals, and we're not investing in our own country. And and then we have the temerity to complain. When you remember the tech takeover, tech is was BC's crown jewel of mining, and they tried to split tech into two components, the base metals and, and, and the coal company. Guess who blocked that split? The Chinese and uh, the, uh, the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund, which was our one of the largest shareholders after the Japanese government in our largest mining company. BCI, our British Columbia Pension Fund, with $233 billion under management, didn't have a single share of tech. And then the, the Premier of British Columbia has the temerity to complain, oh, my God, this can't happen. We can't lose our crown jewel. We're going to lose thousands of jobs. And But they do nothing about it. And we're sitting on $233 billion, and they don't own any tech shares. I mean, yeah. to me, that's where the disconnect is happening. You know, there's a lot of talk. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do 
you have to do something about it. And they're not. You know, we have capital. We're and the, and you think about and I've been doing this for close to forty five years, as you know, we started together in this industry and I've been in the mining game for forty years. Uh, and I've made most of ninety five percent of my wealth outside of Canada. I've invested very low in Canada because it takes forever to get anything done here. Um, so I, I just I, I just find this really tragic. And but there's a solution there. Are, and I can give you the laundry list of solutions how to fix this, but it needs bold and visionary and forward looking policymakers. I'll get into that in a second, because but first, let me just, you just reminded me, I mean, we used to have Inco here, we used to have Alcan, we used to have Falcon Bridge, uh, Naranda, Gold Corp. You know, I mean, there's a long list of names that I think people who aren't in the industry recognize. Well, we've lost yeah. their head offices. Well, yeah. think about the impact then. I'm just inviting people to, this is serious stuff. You know, you've, you've impacted a, an expertise in the workforce. Oh, research and development. Let alone, you know, Frank, I'm always on about this, but we demand certain public services and yet we're not prepared to earn them. I mean, can you imagine the revenue we're saying no to here? You know, and I say, I've, we've been through this movie already. We've, we forgo tens of billions of dollars in oil and gas. This is the opportunity of the EV and the renewable revolution, for goodness sakes. This is a government that's pushing it on the federal level. You know, fair enough. Well, God, let's take advantage of it. I mean, we, I think it's a unique position, you know, as a safe country and the mining expertise. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, as you see, my head's exploding here. <laughs> and then not to mention that this is a money-making opportunity. This is a wealth yeah. creation opportunity. This is not a charity case. We're talking about the minerals that the entire planet is going to need in, 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 in amounts that we don't have yet because it needs to be found, developed, and mined. And that's a very long process. Um, but here's what's happened. So. Several things that have happened that have starved our industry here in Canada of capital. First of all, pension fund aside, we had we used to have dedicated money funds in this country. Uh, I think in 2010 there were our total funds under management were dedicated just mining were 16 billion. Today it's under three billion dollars. So we've lost the institutional support for this sector. As you mentioned, we lost our senior producers who traditionally helped. Not only explore, because if you think about it, traditionally junior mining companies find 55% of the discoveries and the seniors find the rest, 45%. So we've lost our seniors and they also provided funding to junior mining companies. So we've lost that capital as well. And, and one of the reasons, which is the part I find ironic here, is with all of this ESG movement, okay, mining was a carbon emitting industry. So yes. a lot of the funds divested of their mining holdings because there was money is considered dirty, which it isn't. If it's done a, at the industrial level, it certainly is. If it's done informally and illegally as, as it happens in many countries around the world, but the industrial miners are very responsible and they do, you know, they do it in an environmentally safe way. Um, so, the ESG has caused all of these institutions to divest their, 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 their mining interests, which I think is, you know, maybe they're well-meaning, these policymakers that create all these rules, but they haven't connected the dots. Yes. How do you get from here to net zero without those critical minerals? And so I call it woke without wisdom because they haven't really the, – the, the, these minerals are not going to fall out of the sky. you got to go find them. you got to develop them, and, and, and it takes – capital 
And like I said, the juniors, which have traditionally fallen 55% of the global discoveries, are I've never seen a market like this so starved for capital um, where it's almost impossible to raise money in the capital markets because the institutions have gone and it's very it's, it's just become very difficult. So that's number one problem. Number two problem this country has is permitting. It takes 12 to 15 years to permit a, mi- a new mining project. I've done mining projects throughout Africa and Latin America where it takes us between 12 and 24 months or 18 to 24 months, depending on how lucky you get. You have a, a set time period. There's no uncertainty. You you know that if you do everything right in your permitting process, you're going to get your permits within two years. Here it takes 12 to 15 years. Investors, that's why we're not getting any capital. We have both provincial and federal permitting process. We should streamline it into one process and, and make it more efficient so that these mines can get into production. There are a ton of mines here, British Columbia and the Yukon and Ontario, Quebec, that have been in the permitting process forever. And there's so much uncertainty that investors, the one, as you know, the one thing investors don't like is uncertainty. They need to know what is the certainty of the outcome. Then they can make a decision. So you've got that problem. And then you've got the lack of infrastructure in the remote parts of Canada where a lot of these minerals exist or we think they exist. The Ring of Fire in Ontario, up in the Arctic near in none of it. Um, you need roads, you need ports, you need hydroelectric power, or even small uh, modular nuclear reactors, which I think you can use in certain very, very remote places. But that is going to require infrastructure investment. This is where the government can come in. And we can even talk about public-private partnerships, matching funds, low-interest loans, uh, increasing the flow-through amount on the flow-through shares for remote regions to make it even more attractive for investors to take risk to find these minerals in the Arctic and other places. There's a laundry list of things you can do here. But it re- again, it requires a, a government that understands the game, knows what to do, and is bold enough and has a vision like China or Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia has this vision 2030. China has this Belt and Road Initiative. These are long-term visions that require long-term capital. So they have their sovereign wealth funds that have these long-term view on investing. Our pension funds could act in the same way because pension funds traditionally take a long-term view. So that's why I've been harping on this whole pension fund thing because it's capital that is currently sitting in either invested in economies elsewhere, private equity, ETFs, you know, index funds, which, you know, I, I don't do anybody any good and long-term government bonds. I mean, how are you going to grow an economy by investing in long-term government bonds? That's the, we need a different type of investing mentality in this country. I'd say a couple of things jump out immediately. First is back to the irony. This is a government that talks about renewable resources. This is a or rather renewable energy. They talk about electro, electric vehicles by 235. And I, I can tell you just between us, Frank, the biggest blowback I've ever had doing the broadcasting I do for 40 years was talking about, oh, that's all good. Where are you getting it from? I think literally I would talk the practicality of it and been very keen on the minerals for a number of years because I felt it was inevitable where you're going in the direction. But it was like the people who were pushing it didn't even understand, well, you will need copper, you know. It was that elementary. And we're, I don't see any progress. I know the government in the last budget finally talked about 
uh, you know, critical minerals and had a fund set aside, but it's got to be put into action, as you say. It's nothing without, we got to, I mean, I yeah, just find what, that so ironic that, that yeah, they're the yeah, obstacle. Yeah, they're definitely the obstacle. And Michael, that fund, which you just mentioned, yeah. you know, only 300 million is available so far, and only half of that money is available for what I'm talking about, going out there, finding mm-hmm. and developing it. The, the the actual mineral ore bodies. The rest is about you know downstream infrastructure and all that sort of thing. So it's not a lot of money. That's yeah. not. We're going to need literally billions of dollars, and some of it's got to come from outside of government. And I think again, our pension funds are sitting on uh, I think three and a half, four trillion dollars yeah. of Canadian savings. And to me, you have to invest in your own country somewhat. I mean, it's ridiculous we're meant investing almost zero. In our own country, you know, sure, of course, you have to maximize returns. That means you have to look at markets all over the world. But, you know, again, use the Australian example. They've kept their industry at home. They won't allow um, Brookfield to try to take over Origin Energy, uh, a company in Australia. And their Aussie pension funds blocked it. And they came right out and said it. The reason we're not going to we don't want to lose this This is going to be an important part of our energy transition, this company. We don't want to lose it. They were very clear about it. And look at us with tech. You know, we, we couldn't even find the votes to, to stop because you know, the Japanese and the Chinese owned the majority of tech. And so, again, I think we have to be sensible. And we're not being sensible. You know, you have to be practical and know how you're going to get from A to B. And, and I, I, I don't see that anywhere. I just see a lot of talk. And, it, you know, it's tragic because we could create a lot of wealth for this country, a lot. And, and and that's a key we'll leave with is that the amount of jobs are talking government revenue. If you want the EV revolution, the trans, you know, the, the renewable energy trans, you need this stuff. We need to get practical. We're 10 years late in that, in my opinion, but we need to get practical. Uh, Frank, you've gone a long way, though, to help clearing that up. And I hope you keep doing it. And I'll tell you, one of the things they should do is phone Frank Justra. And I'm being serious. Phone people like yourself long, you know, and you wrote your article with uh, Pierre Bizonet. You know, people who've been in the business, we have those people available to the government. So it takes leadership. And yeah. uh, so far, it's been lacking. Frank, not from you, though. <laughs> but we appreciate keep, very I'll, much. I'll keep, I'll keep at it, Michael. Well, do, do, do please. Uh, but very right. much appreciate you finding time for us. My pleasure, as always. A reminder, you can hear that interview or see that interview on YouTube with Frank Justra. Just go to our YouTube channel, click on, or you can just type in Frank Justra Money Talks in the search engine, but you can watch it on YouTube is my point. Time now for the quote of the week. Barry Weiss is a former New York Times columnist who created a media storm in quitting the newspaper, claiming that its editorial voice had been captured by those who felt they alone understand the truth and all must comply. I mean, she now moved on to the very popular podcast, Honestly, which I recommend, by the way, along with Substack for her. I invite you to spend a couple minutes, though, and listen to her description of the new ideology that's trying to replace what I guess we'd call small L liberalism in America and Canada. She gave it to first year students at the University of Austin. In her words, the new ideology replaces persuasion, the purpose of argument, with public shaming. Moral complexity is replaced with moral certainty. Facts are replaced with feelings. The rule of law is replaced with mob rule. Ideas are replaced with identity. 
Forgiveness is replaced with punishment. Debate is replaced with disinvitation and deplatforming. Diversity is replaced with homogeneity of thought. Inclusion with exclusion. Excellence with equity. In this ideology, disagreement is recast as trauma. So speech is violence. But violence, when carried out by the right people in pursuit of a just cause, isn't violence at all, but in fact justice. In this ideology, bullying is wrong unless you bully the right people, in which case it's very, very good. In this ideology, information that does comport with the narrative is recast as, that does not comport with the narrative, rather, is recast as disinformation. In this ideology, education is not about teaching people how to think. It's about re-educating them into what to think. In this ideology, if you do not tweet the right tweet or share the right slogan, your life can be ruined. In this ideology, intentions don't matter. In this ideology, you are guilty for the sins of your father. In this system, we're all placed neatly on a spectrum of privilege to oppressed. Victim, victimhood, in this ideology, confers morality. In this ideology, the equality of opportunity is replaced with equality of outcome as a means of fairness. If everyone doesn't finish the race at the same time, then the course must have been flawed and should be dismantled. By the way, I don't believe for a moment she could have got away with that at the New York Times, but I think it is food for thought. Massive changes here. People should consider them. In fact, I say you must. Decide if you agree and support the new ideology or traditional small-l liberal thought. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in right now. You know, Mike, I think we're all waiting for that big slowdown in the economy and not saying it's not coming, but uh, I was looking at the Canadian banks, the banks earning this week, and uh, they're not sensing it yet. Well, they sure aren't, Mike. And uh, just pardon me, taking a quick look at them, um, uh, five of the big six came in above expectations. I mean, and some of them way above expectations. Uh, Bank of Nova Scotia earned $2.2 billion. Uh, it's about a dollar sixty-eight a share. Analysts were expecting a buck sixty-one. Uh, BMO was the only one that was down, as I say, of the six. RBC earned two eighty-five. Analysts expecting two eighty a share. National Bank uh, earned nine hundred and twenty-two million, two fifty-nine a share. Analysts were expecting two thirty-six a share. And I can go on and tell you about all of them, but it was a very, very pleasant surprise. But Mike, I, Mike, I think me, one of the let things- me interrupt for a sec because I want to make sure people understand why do they care? They say, "Well, I don't have that in my RSP, or I don't have that, you know, in my stock portfolio." And I'm saying, "Yes, you do," because who are the biggest owners? Well, you look at, of course, the Canada Pension Fund, and if you're lucky, yeah. you have a business pension fund, and if you're lucky, it's a a government pension fund. Well, you know, provincial, I mean, or municipal. Yeah. Point is, the big banks are so well represented in all of those pensions. So if you're lucky enough to be part of a company pension plan, or of course you're part of the Canada pension plan, this is all good news to you. You like your shares to be strong and the earnings to be strong and the dividends to be strong. And that's really what you're talking about here, Mike. Well, it absolutely is. And uh, I've got to say that it was a pleasant surprise. And as you said, most people do not realize that if they have a pension plan, they're Canadian CPP, or if they have pension plans where they work, or they have mutual funds, you've got the Canadian banks in just about every single one of them. 
Okay, so let me ask you about another aspect, though, because, of course, we are worried about a slowing economy, especially the consumer backing off. You know, so the banks always take into account the possibility that not all their loans are going to be kind of well handled. You know, there's going to be some defaults. So I always have a look at that. Did you check that out on these uh, earnings? Well, I sure did, Mike. And I've got to tell you that loan loss provisions by the banks have been, uh, I mean, very well stated. But the banks seem habitually to come in with these loan loss provisions lower than actually those that they're taking. And uh, they, or if the economy turns, they then go back to the bottom line profits. And just let me give you a couple of examples here. Bank of Nova Scotia took $962 million in loan loss provisions. Well, if they don't use up that whole $962,000 or a million to pay off some of the bad loans, then they're going to go back to the bottom line of the banks. And you, as a investor or with a pension plan, you're going to benefit from bank shares going up. You're going to benefit because their dividends will go up. So uh, all in all, what the banks did this uh, last quarter compared to a year ago has been pretty good news. Yeah, I mean, cautious. That's why they take loan losses. But I love you making that point, Mike, that if things aren't as bad as they've allowed for, that goes right back to earnings. So, yeah, it took away from earnings in this last you know, quarter. It'll add to the earnings when they decide, yeah, things have improved. So I'm just saying that's a key point for investors. It really is. And, Mike, the forecasters have been really overstating what they think the banks are going to uh, – the hit the banks are going to take because of um, – the economy right now, the higher interest rates, people not doing as much business, not taking out as many mortgages or mortgages for a higher amount. And the fact is, they've been wrong. The banks have been over, yeah, I mean, just doing a really good job of, of keeping house, of keeping track of everything uh, that they are uh, out on a limb for. And they tend to overstate and it tends to come in under. And again, that's very good news. Now, the only forecast that gives me a little bit of a step back is uh, the analysts are saying profits will drop going forward year over year by about 12%. But they continue to be wrong as the banks overperform. Well, we'll be there monitoring. You think they're keeping an eye on it. Michael Levy's keeping an eye on it, too. Mike, you go out and have a great week. Thanks, Mike. You also. I'm proud to say a big subject that we've been talking about for a number of years on Money Talks because of the social problems it causes is the lack of housing, a lack of affordable housing, the lack of affordable rents. I know it's an old song and it seems like the various levels of government are just maybe discovering it. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to go to somebody who's actually in that business, working hard on it. Ralph Vanderwall, he's the founder, CEO of Easy Invest. Now, this is what they do. They're sort of a boutique investment dealer uh, out of Richmond, British Columbia. Uh, You know, has its own mutual fund trust, uh, the Western Canada Monthly Income Fund. But what they do is develop local real estate projects. Uh, Ralph, let me start by just saying thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's do, something we talk about on Money Talks is this incredible demand for housing, thanks to uh, you know uh, non-permanent visas coming in here, temporary visas coming in for students, for workers, and of course the new immigration par- uh, target set in 2000, October 2000, saying you were going to have record immigration. I mean, all of that's obviously now pu- pushed such a squeeze on housing. 
It's incredible, Mike. I've been in real estate investing for 20 years. I've never seen anything like it. In my presentations, I call it the biggest train wreck in Canada's history. That's the bad news if you're trying to get into the real estate market. If you're in the real estate market as an investor or as a developer, which we are both, it's just the holy grail. I mean, there's yeah. a massive imbalance between supply and demand for housing. Yeah, and it's funny because you could say, hey, uh, you know, how do you know you got a good market? Well, my goodness, look at those numbers. I mean, I know you guys had written and talked about that CMHC report coming out last September. You know, that's where it really grabbed people saying, hey, you know, we don't only going to have the 2.6 million houses across the country. We need a heck of a lot more than that. I think the number they came up with recently is we need an extra 3.5 million homes by the next seven years just to keep up with affordability. That's on top of the 2.6 million homes that are already on the books, but I think they're low on the number. Yeah, I, you're right. I think CIBC would agree with you. Uh, they came out and said, hey, you forgot to count about 1.4 million people. The, the number is more than 5 million above, as you say, and that's the key to get, above the 2.6 million that was already planned by 2030. I mean, as we said, great environment for people like yourselves who create housing. But then we've heard another thing too. I mean, I've talked to lots of people in the development business and it just seems like so many times our municipal, provincial, federal governments are working counterproductively to that with this huge, you know, sort of levies or regulatory delays or things. Give me from the ground level what kind of stuff you're dealing with that way. Well, first of all, there's the cost and then there's the, the capacities of municipal places, uh, cities where you, where you develop. For example, when we went for our, uh, our building permit in Maple Ridge, uh, we took about $300,000 worth of drawings to the city there. And my architect, after delivering them in paper, said, where do I send the digital files? And are you sitting down for this? They said, we don't have the capacity to receive digital files. Yeah. Wow. And that's in a city of over 100,000 people. And then they take a good nine months to approve your building permit. In that meantime, the cost of capital continues, which gets added on to the final cost of each unit. And on top of that, you've, you've got the massive cost of doing business in Canada. Uh, if if you want, we can talk about the numbers. Let, let me come back to the first, though, because, again, it's somewhat overlooked, is permit delays. We hear about that all the time. You know, and governments have acknowledged that. And yet, as you said, you've already purchased the land. You know, the clock's ticking. It's your expenses are going up while you have to sit idle waiting for permission to build the units governments tell us they want. I mean, all of this is it's back to that sort of, confused train wreck, uh, you know, there. And then, as you say, yeah, give us an example of some of the costs they throw on. Why? Because as the end user, I'm the one paying for it. I'll give you an example of Maple Ridge. I'll share with you, we bought the land for $7.3 It's a beautiful piece of land overlooking the Fraser River. It's very unique, but there's some extra costs you got to keep into account. We have a deposit of $1.3 with the city for engineering work, which they hold without interest for a couple of years. Eventually, we do get it back. The transfer tax in BC was 285000 The federal GST on the land purchase, 377000 That we do get back during construction. Then the annual property taxes, around twenty nine grand for two years. Developer cost charges are a whopper. That's roughly $435,000 that you don't get back. Park fees, fifteen grand. i will add it up for you, $2.4 or over $67,000 per unit. After we get some rebates of the GST, that comes down to roughly two point, uh, sorry, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or twenty one thousand per unit. Then, when you sell the units, the end user obviously pays GST on their unit. 
that adds another 1.6 million. So the government on all three levels take 2.3 million on a piece of land which costs us 7.3. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I really hope people listen to that. Uh, I, I've always been, I'm not, I'm not putting words in your mouth, so I, please be clear, everyone listening, but it's driven me nuts when I hear politicians talk about their caring and their deep concern about affordable housing. And then you turn around, you talk to someone in the business, like you people at Easy Invest, and you hear that list, you know, and as you say, either you're paying it or I as a consumer, the end buyer is going to pay it. And there's other, there's even other attachments to that on top of that. I mean, first, you know, one of the things, sorry, Ralph, I'll digress for a sec, but one of the things I talked about uh, a week or so ago was we forget the biggest problem with affordability is that's the amount of tax taken off my paycheck that I need to be able to afford a down payment and then monthly payments. I mean, we forget that's at about a 50% level when all taxes are taken into account for the average Canadian, you know, sales taxes, et cetera, gas taxes, let alone your income tax. Sorry, as you can tell, it drives me nuts because they're telling me they care about affordability. And then you give us a list like that and, you know, it's jaw dropping. It really is. So as a developer, especially with the interest rates being a lot higher than they were a couple of years mm. ago, it forces us to, to outsource all materials as far as we can. And I really don't like doing it. I love Canada. I love supporting Canadians. We employ hundreds of people on these development sites, but we have to save costs. So for example, when we do our building model, we get quotes here in Canada, and then we get quotes in China, and we get quotes in India. And the cost savings are over 50% if we outsource to other countries. But if you want to keep the cost down, you got to do stuff like that. You know, I mean, if you want to pass it on to the consumer with the desire for affordable housing, make your units more attractive, you know, you've got to, you've got to be searching. And interesting point there, there's very few places you can do that, like areas. I mean, you know, your material cost is puffed to outsource too far, you know, I mean, because you've got transportation costs, you might have tariffs if you come from the U.S. But as you say, uh, there's nothing you can do about the tax burden coming from three levels of government. So there's really a narrow corridor for you to say, I wonder if we can save a few bucks here. It's the only way to go. At the end of the day, our investor capital is looking for a good return yeah. without too much risk. So if the return is not where we want it to be, then we'll just simply have to get out of this industry and invest somewhere else. So that's what we have to do. Let me ask specifically, uh, you know, because people around, as you say, you do investors and you do development both. Just tell me the kinds of things or amenities or what, that, first of all, what do people want right now besides affordability? Is there anything else you say, like, I, we do a lot better if we do a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom than if we do a one-bedroom, you know, that kind of stuff? Or, you know, what is the road structure like? That kind of stuff. The, our next project is really geared for families. Like most condominium developments in the outlying areas of, of Vancouver, such as Maple Ridge or Abbotsford, are not very large units. You know, they tend to be 750, 800 square feet. Our units in Maple Ridge are designed larger. They all tend to be 1,100 and 1,200 square feet. Most of them two and three bedrooms, and all of them, almost all of them have a den. So we're really applying to families that are being pushed out of the greater Vancouver area. And what about transportation? I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is how do you get from there back if you, ha if you have to go back to the city, although I love the work at home or some hybrid version so you don't have to tr commute near as much. And to me, that opens up you know, uh, suburbs far more. But what about other considerations? So as you know, the city of Vancouver is densifying lots of areas under Bill 44 and Bill 47. They're all based on transit, and that's what we looked for in Maple Ridge. So we found a site that has the West Coast Express stopping at the front door. 
So the theory is that the families that live there, maybe they'll have one person work from home and maybe one person commute either by car or by transit. Now, the other thing, by the way, uh, just because I was reading, you weren't telling me this, but I was reading about Easy Invest is um, you're, you're actually past you know, the formal permit process, you know, the first permit process, like you've got, so, because that is a risk. I mean, I know that from personal experience that you've got to get those permits. So I'm just talking to investors right now, that would be an attractive component is where they're at with that permitting process. Absolutely. So in the past, I've done lots of projects where we take raw land through the rezoning process and then the development permit and the building permit process. I have steered away from that. In fact, I joke to people when they come up with a piece of land that needs rezoning, I said, I'm a rezonaholic. <laughs> I, I got a 1-800 number I can call if I wake up in the middle of the night and I want to rezone something. Because <laughs> in Canada, that's a minefield. You never know what's coming at you. And I have many clients when I was in investor relations in the past that went through rezoning and spent sometimes up to 10 years waiting for rezoning yeah. in certain municipalities. So I don't do that anymore. We buy properties that either have the zoning or the zoning is in progress. Yeah, it's something to check on again for investors when they're looking around within that. Well, as I say, I mean, could you think of a more uh, bigger demand for the products that you put out than the current housing market? And I don't see any sign of it actually having some sort of dramatic improvement. We're so far behind on that. Uh, so, yeah, great business to be in. But I, I really appreciate you taking time sharing the perspective you have from the ground up. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. Ralph Vanderwall is uh, co-founder, CEO of Easy Invest. And I want to tell you about something here. They've got two seminars coming up this week, Tuesday and Wednesday. You just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, two webinars, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, mikesmoneytalks.ca, 6 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, 6 o'clock. Or is that daylight time by next year? I don't even know when the hell that changed. 6 o'clock, check on your watch that way. But you'll find it right there on Money Talks, by the way. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. But please enroll because there's always limited, just with the technologies, there's a limited number of people that can go. So it's uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. More on this, more on the whole development industry and opportunities within the investment side of it. And Ralph will be there, of course. So take advantage, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And it's straightforward. Get ready to pay more, a lot more, for anything chocolate. Chocolate bars, boxes of candy, uh, chocolate-coated ice cream bars, hot chocolates. I think you get the idea. Everything chocolate. And we'll probably see a lot of shrinkflation amongst us, although that's very difficult for stats can to measure in our inflation stats. But we'll get shrinkflation. We'll look at that chocolate bar and go, wait a second, what happened to the king size? Why? And here's the shocking part. Cocoa prices are up 120% in the last year. I just love that when I saw it. Shocking to say that would have been an investment opportunity. I didn't take. But 120%. Why? Because... Demand continues to outstrip supply, which is getting hit by bad weather and disease. I mean, this will impact virtually every Canadian consumer, given that Mintel, a Mintel survey last fall found that 86% of respondents had eaten some chocolate in the last three months. According to the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation and Agriculture, the average Canadian eats 6.4 kilograms of chocolate per year. That's the equivalent of 160 bars. So, yeah, the price is going to be felt, that kind of an increase. And with apologies, by the way, to all those who are attracted to oversimplification when it comes to high food prices. 
That price increase is definitely not because of greedy grocers, but we'll still be paying it anyways. I'm going to go straight to the real estate section right now, and who else but Ozzy Jurek greets me there. I know he's excited. we got the polar plunge coming just a few hours away. Oli's been, I mean, Ozzy's just been such a great sport about all of this, you know, and, but also he's committed to helping raise funds for people with intellectual disability from two years old to 82 years old. So I'm looking forward to Ozzy. I mean, this is my highlight of the year when I say you and Lederhosen, I mean, nothing can beat it. So uh, (laughs) I'm glad you're still making time for us today because there's a couple of things that are on my plate right now. I mean, I'm still astounded at, for all the government announcements they make, it's so easy to point out things that would discourage affordable housing. And, you know, we talked earlier with Ralph about the obstacles, but, I mean, you've been looking across the country. Well, the crazy thing is the government says we need to be affordable, we need more building, and then they blame the industry and the developers for not building enough, and then they add 30% of the cost of every condo and every house is government, and they have unregulated inward migration, and the result is very clear. It's not just BC, but across the country, we have developers and builders getting into trouble. In fact, Tarion, which is sort of the Ontario watchdog or the insurance agency that managers say, if you if you made a deposit on a pre-sale and mm-hmm. they want to get your money back, Mike, they're facing a historic 90 million in claims as Ontario builders are defaulting amid the economic strains that they have right now. Yeah, it's just flabbergasting, actually. It's just flabbergasting when you look around. Uh, around, And then you've got, for example, in British Columbia, they've turned around and said, we're going to have a flipping tax. First of all, they don't have any data whatsoever that says that'll improve the real estate market. And I'll ask you that in a second. But let's inform everyone across the country, because as we know, one province does something, everybody has a long look to say, hey, maybe we could raise some money that way. So tell us just quickly about that so-called flipping tax that the NDP government's going to put in. So it's actually a 20% tax on property owners that sell within a year of purchase. And it's actually for two years, but it's a sort of a declining from 20% down, depending on which months in the second year you sell. We, the devil is always in the detail, Mike, but I'm just thinking, let's presume I'm a guy, I want to buy a million dollar pre-sale. In a high rise, it takes from five and seven years. I usually put $200,000 down, 20%. Let me say this, I'm hoping to make 100,000 profit, but now the federal government takes profit if I sell it in the seventh year at a rate save. My tax rate is 36%. BC takes the flipping tax at 20% at 5% at commission, and you're spending 70% of that $100,000 anticipated profit, and you've taken a chance, even though you help building the building. Now, Mike, why not just put it in the bank? Van City offers 5.9% right now. The banks are in the 5, 5 to 6% range. Make 6% for seven years or $90,000 without not any headaches. Yeah, and, and again, it's sort of flabbergasting because, of course, now all the questions come, which will put a halt to some of these pre-sales right now until they're cleared up, and that's suggesting investors will believe it. But, I mean, when does the meter start on that one-year and then two-year kind of time frame? Is it when I sign the pre-sale agreement? It's when, it, when I sort of take possession of a completed unit? Uh, you know, those questions, to me at least, are outstanding. Is it going to apply to my principal residence if I'm going to plan to live there in the future? Uh, you know, what is it? Well, it, you, this is the most number one question, because when when the government said that they will also apply the flipping tax to assignments, that means that the, the date that you say and sign on your 
the, the purchase of his mm. condo in the sky five or six, seven years ago. From that on, every assignment that you would, you'd sign would vary the cost if they fall within that, that ratio. And But that's, uh, that's out to be a, a, some clarity to be pending. But the interesting thing is that Tom Davidoff, who's the director of UBC Center of Urban Economics, he said, I don't expect this tax to make a great deal of difference either way. And he said the federal government instituted a profit from the disposition of flipped property that are taxed as business income. That hasn't helped bring down the cost of housing. And then he says empty houses, you know, nobody is there to vote. So they're an attractive target for taxation. <laughs> yeah. Good, good for you, Mr. David. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, the uncertainty alone as just an individual investor, you know, uh, the uncertainty because of that, the uncertainty for the development industry. I think this is going to throw a, you know, cold water, a blanket, you know, in one of the provinces is having this huge immigration challenge. You know, affordable housing has been an issue for a number of number. From, feels like forever to me. But this is going to discourage people to invest, discourage builders to build at a time when we're already, as you pointed out, right at the outset, seeing some dislocation between those, uh, you know, that you've got some builders canceling projects or putting them on hold, et cetera. This certainly doesn't help. No, or, or simply going bankrupt like in Ontario. I mean, normally in Ontario, they spend under $1 million a year. Now they're at $90 million. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is some real problem there. Ozzy, let me finish with tell, talking to you about a few names here. So just sit back for a second. Adam, Matt, and Megan uh, Bodine uh, Ball, Kevin Kinnett, Spencer Goodwill, Sharan Seti, Bob Blanchard, Mary Jane Panganaban. It's always nice to hear me pronounce any name fresh like that. <laughs> Panganaban. Uh, Essen Mock Fisk, Evan and Robert Jarvis, Scott and Lee Grant, Lucas Gill, Dave and Jane Braithwaite. Keith Lumby, Marcus Von Berg, and our own Dustin Noble, of course. And I hope Vlad Newell isn't traveling, but he was with us last year. Hope he is this year. These are all the people who are going to jump in with you, me, former Premier Gordon Campbell, and, of course, Rob Levy from Border Gold. All of us are going to join it. It is going to be one major party, courtesy of the Jurok Star Quality. So we'll be down <laughs> at English Bay. We'll be right across from the uh, Sylvia Hotel. We're going to be there about 12.30. I've got all sorts of treats planned for people. We've got coffee ready to go. Be there about 12.30, half an hour in advance of the plunge. Not that we're going to go exactly at 1 or 101, but get a chance to chat with. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to chat with all our fellow plungers. And I know they want a couple of pictures with you, Ozzy, because they need an attractive, young, European origin man (laughs) in short shorts later hosen so ozzy i'm looking forward to it those are all the people who've been kind enough and brave enough to join you and i and uh, premier campbell well there's also mike uh, my partner of case and uh, brent roberts uh, uh, is, is also coming with a group so we're going to have fun now mike i want to ask you what would you call a polar bear that loves to lie about in the sun well you would call him a solar bear but what <laughs> but what would you call a polar bear with no teeth a gummy bear <laughs> And that's a sample of what people will get today with Aussie. Again, 1 o'clock, English Bay, across from the Silvio Hotel. Well, that's when we're plunging. Be there at 1230. Have a little chat with us or in, you know, whenever you can make it, of course. But we'll be there at 1230. Take a few pictures. Have a little chat. Have a little treat. Oh, it's going to be the event of the year. Social event of the year, Aussie. 
And I can tell you, everybody at uh, Special Olympics appreciates all of the support you continue to give, not just here, every year in the golf tournament, despite the fact you've never played golf, or it looks that way when you actually show up. <laughs> but we look forward to it, Ozzy. See you soon. You bet. I look forward to it. <laughs> to be over. <laughs> I'm going live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare joins me. Vic, you know, last week you started off by saying you're sort of waking up in a cold sweat thinking of the casino market. Well, nothing I saw this week is going to change that view. I mean, the optimism is, uh, well, for some people, it's frightening, the degree of optimism. I mean, and we've had these bouts over the last several years where all of a sudden euphoria is certainly the dominant trend. Yeah, the market sentiment, I'd describe it as uh, it's almost giddy bullish with Mm. what's happening in the stock indices and the whole crypto universe. I mean, I think Bitcoin is uh, up doubled from last fall and up 4x from, you know, the week before that, that sort of thing. It's it's very bullish. Right this week, certainly high tech. Uh, our big cap tech has been kind of leading the rally. But I'm also seeing like every Tom, Dick and Harry is getting a bid. You know, people are buying anything that's been left behind, thinking they're getting a bargain. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the run up we had in late 2007 when we took out the 2001 highs and people were buying, you know, whatever they could get their hands on. And this, the sense seems to be. You know, we had this prospect of of seven cuts back in December by February that scaled it back to three cuts and it didn't really matter because we were never going to have a recession anyway. That seems to be the prevailing mood. Like, you just can't make a mistake here. Option volatility is really cheap. Nobody's worried about anything. And as I said last week, Mike, you can buy puts if you want to hedge your position. They're practically giving them away. Well, let me give you the other side, and because what's sort of interesting is because there was a, a lot made of this at Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett, they never had more cash on the books. In other words, they can't find anything they think is great value. But, you know, uh, we talked, and I know you put this up on your blog too, victoradare.ca, where, you know, you got insider sales too. You know, in major companies, they're thinking, hey, that price is pretty good. I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah, I think, you know, depending on your time frame, you have to kind of pay attention to insider buying and selling. This week, I mean, the big names were Walmart, JP Morgan, Meta, uh, Amazon, of course, the past couple of weeks, Bezos sold several billion dollars for the stock. I mean, maybe he needs money for a new boat or something. Who, who knows? But you, you started with Buffett. Buffett can't, and he's a value investor, fair enough. He can't find anything to put his money into here except, well, you know, T-bills at 5.5% don't look bad to Buffett. Okay, let me, sorry, just because time's always short, and that's why I invite people to go to victoradare.ca and look at the blog, but I got to go to gold because here's another thing. It's kind of interesting. Crypto's had a wonderful run here. You know, gold didn't join in. Uh, I, You know, you look at stocks. We've just been talking about their run. I just find it fascinating that the gold stocks have not been major participants here, despite the fact that I know it's it's one day. But on you know we saw it go above two thousand again on Friday. I think it was. Yeah, gold actually had an all time high weekly close this week. That's the gold on the futures market in, in New York. Uh, but 
basically gold has been ignored here mm. while the, the enthusiasm is going on in the other markets. You know, in the gold ETFs, we've seen net selling for the last three years, despite where the price is, because, you know, stocks are sexier and Bitcoin's even sexier than that. And the gold share market, Mike, has just woefully underperformed gold bullion. And the bellwether, I, you know, it almost feel bad to say this, but Newmont, which is the <laughs> biggest gold company in the world, their shares were 86 bucks when the Russians invaded the Ukraine. They traded at $30 this year, uh, this week, I should say. And that's a five or a six year low. Now, they've been plagued with different problems. They're trying to tidy up their their affairs, but they have got like zillions <laughs> of reserves and they're you know viable company and all that it might and we don't give investment advice right but you kind of look at newmont and think at 30 bucks you know maybe that's worth taking a look at well and and we talked with frank juster earlier in the show as you heard you know and frank echoed peter granditch and many others they've never seen the junior market like this you know it's just been comatose there's so little money going into that sector and yes it's right through to the a senior like Newmont. I mean, that's a tremendous drop. Come on. You know, 86 high and a $30 low this past week. Wow. 65%. And part of, and if I've got 30 seconds, I'll tell you, part of the reason the juniors, particularly the goals, but anything junior can't get any money is because of passive investing. Mm. Where most of the market money that's going into the market now goes into passive where they buy, you know, sort of the broad market and the juniors aren't even on the radar screen. So, you know, that's just there's no (laughs) there's no hope there right now. As you say, I, I don't make we're not making a recommendation. We don't know everyone's individual circumstances. I'll just tell you, you say, Mike, what are you doing for a hobby? I'm shopping to buy the entire country, a company right there. I have my criteria. Of course, that's what the stock market's all about. But your point's well taken. Vic, I'll invite people, as I said, to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Check out the latest chart, see what Vic's thinking. In the meantime, Vic, have a terrific weekend. Thanks, Mike. And you won't be polar plunging, I want you to know. And so I insist that you think about us in the cold water coming up shortly. If people are listening to this on Saturday morning, one o'clock, English Bay, the tears will be flowing. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And I'll tell you, it's a beauty. In Canada, there's an estimated 70,000 vehicles that are stolen every year. I mean, that's why it's become a big issue politically. Of course, anything can become a big political issue, but come on, 70,000 stolen vehicles, a billion dollars a year in theft claims, with literally tens of thousands of stolen cars put in containers shipped out of Canada. In Ontario and Quebec alone, an estimated 42,000 cars were stolen last year. So the Port of Montreal and the Canada Border Service Agencies are on high alert. As Blacklocks reports, 60% of the vehicles that end up at the Port of Montreal were stolen in Ontario, and they're put in steeled containers shipped to countries in Africa, Mideast, and Europe. And the government, of course, is on the case, at least according to them. But here's the problem, and it's goofy. There are only five officers at the Port of Montreal, and they're responsible for searching over 580,000 containers a year for stolen cars. And to make matters worse, it's like it's taken out of a Monty Python skit. Canada Border Agency says that the X-ray scanner used for the containers only works about half the time. 
which may help explain why only 1,038 vehicles were intercepted at the Port of Montreal last year out of, what, 42,000 stolen in Quebec and Ontario. But here's the capper. Customs officers can only seize six stolen cars at a time. Why? Because all the waterfront parking is taken up, and that's all they can accommodate, according to the president of the Customs and Immigration Union. So when they get their six spaces full, there's not any need to search any more containers because they don't have anywhere to put the stolen cars. I'll bet there's parking spaces, by the way, available in those countries in Africa, the Mideast and Europe. But what I love is to think about those people who want the government to do more and the lack of efficiency to spread in other areas of our lives. Come on, really think about it. This is like a comedy skit, as I said. We really do get the government we deserve. P.S. I personally deserve better. What about you? Hey, that's all the time we have. And if you're listening, of course, on Saturday, we're polar plunging at one o'clock in English Bay. There is still time to help us out and donate by going to Money Talks Plunge, moneytalksplunge.com, moneytalksplunge.com. And in the meantime, I hope you do join us on Money Talks Tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Even better if you tell friends about it, because the more informed you are, the better it is. That's good for all of us there. And you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. I hope you have a terrific week.